The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders. Going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. What's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat, picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket, outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. listening to Judging Megan with your host, Megan Judge. I wanted to talk to you today about the subject of hot yoga. Um, I have been doing hot yoga and I'm going to tell you, I feel like when I go that my insides are cooking from within and I don't really, I'm, I'm on the fence if I like it. So the girl that I invited me to go with her, it's my friend, Amy, and she's super She's super flexible and can do all of the, like all the holds and all the stretches and everything. And then I'm so embarrassed. I'm the person there with like two bricks because I haven't been like doing my stretching like I'm supposed to. And because I'm like a runner and, um, and I do the Peloton, so I'm biking all the time. I'm super, my legs are always super tight. And it's just really embarrassing. And I know that they video the class and I'm always like, please don't ever show this to anybody because it is not 
it's not a, it would not be a flattering, um, it would not be a flattering thing for anybody to see of me, but I'm giving it a try and I I'll keep you updated if I keep going at this, but, um, thank you, Amy, for introducing me to, uh, the, the world of hot yoga and cooking my insides. I do have to say that I feel really, really good when I leave. It's kind of like the same feeling as running a marathon. So I'm going to start the show and I'm going to introduce my guest. So really quickly, I wanted to thank all of you for donating on my website to buy me a buttery Chardonnay. I love that uh, the people that have donated, I really appreciate it. It helps me keep my production costs going. It helps me pay my fabulous Danny, my producer. It also um, is not used for buttery Chardonnay. Like I've said before, I really use it. It's kind of a joke just on the website, but I appreciate all of you. I also appreciate your reviews on Apple. If you're so inclined to, to leave me one, it helps people find me a little bit easier. And I just appreciate all of my listeners. So thank you so much. I am actually almost at my year mark in October of starting this passion project of mine. And I am just so thrilled and um, and emo- almost emotional that I've, I've come so far in the past year. And I I owe a lot of that to you guys, my listeners, everyone, my listeners. Thank you so much. Okay, so I am introducing you to my guest, Glenn Schiraldi. He is a PhD. Glenn, are you, how exactly would you um, describe your title? Do I call you Dr. Glenn? Um, Yeah, at school, it's Dr. Glenn Schiraldi. Okay. You call me Glenn now. It's fine. Okay. So I want my listeners to know that Glenn, I'm sorry if I'm making you uncomfortable, but you really do look like Richard Gere. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's, um, it's kind of, it's a, it's a very flattering thing to say because I'm a big, big Richard Gere fan, but I'm excited to have you on um, because we are going to talk about your new book and talk about um, some of your experience in the world of studying ACEs. And I am very excited for you to come on and talk about this. I have had my guest, Samantha, from the 16 Strong Project, come on in the past and talk about how she's having uh, her program put into schools across the country so kids, teens really understand at a younger age that they may or may not be an ACE and, and they can help get themselves, you know, therapy and help at a younger age than we myself did, because I never really understood what was, you know, I knew what I went through in my house, but I didn't know how to deal with it. And I think my generation, especially, um, we didn't have answers and now we do. So thank you again so much for coming on. You bet. It's it's uh, my passion, too. And so I'm really delighted we can talk about this. So let me ask you a question. Are you I, I looked in the notes and it says that you're are you at the University of Maryland? Is that where you teach? I'm actually retired from the University of Maryland and I retired okay. because I wanted more time to to write and teach about okay. this particular thing. 
Okay, so I'm a I'm from Maryland. So we have. Right, mm. I don't know if you're still in Maryland, but I no. Um, you're not. We actually moved to Florida, my wife and I, about four years ago. So we're okay. enjoying the okay. sunshine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My mom's in Florida, but um, big Terps fan. Um, just growing up in uh, in Potomac, and my dad. Funny story. Um, and his best friend, one of his best friends, is Johnny Holiday who did all of the um, Terps games, still does actually, um, mm. on WMAL. And my dad was the statistician for the oh, Maryland wow. Terps when I was a kid before he passed away. So um, when I saw that in the notes, I was very excited. Mm. Uh, so let's start with how you actually got into, um, let's start with your history. How did you um, become get your degree? How did you, what is your history? Let's start there. So um, I went to West Point undergraduate and uh, it was during the Vietnam era. And a lot of my friends would come back, you know, wounded emotionally. And I had no idea how to help. And then I taught high school, a little town, a factory town in Connecticut. And you saw everything with the kids struggling with rape and drugs and abuse and and suicide. Again, I had no idea how to help. And so I uh, came back to the University of Maryland where they had a wonderful stress uh, program. Uh, and I was there 27 years. And it was basically biomedical beneath the head. You know, we talked about the mind-body connection, but paid very little attention to the mind and the mental health side. So I got very involved in um, the mental health side of stress. And um, one thing led to another. People would say, well, can you turn me on to a book that's down to earth and I can understand it? Because psychologists write a lot of books that nobody can understand. And so I said, well, I'll look. And then I usually would come up with the answer. I haven't found one that's user-friendly. So I started writing books on all things stress-related, depression, anxiety, uh, self-esteem, anger, which is what we worked on at the Pentagon. Uh, and then I finally said, okay, if we're going to get serious about helping people cope with stress, we've got to understand post-traumatic stress disorder. So over a five-year period, I researched and wrote a book on PTSD. And then a few years later, I, I um, realized that a lot of the military troops and cops and firefighters I was working with through my through my company, yes, they come with operational stress, stress related to their jobs, but often that's piled on top of stuff that happened way back in childhood. And so everybody focuses on, you know, recent adult stress, and that's good, but it's insufficient if we don't deal with the unhealed wounds from childhood. So I started writing and researching a book on adverse childhood experiences first identified as a predictor of health issues back in 1998. That's 23 years ago. And I'm thinking to myself, how come nobody's written a book to help people heal? And, uh, and that's basically what I've been doing all my career is taking things out of the clinic, putting them in the hands of people who are suffering so that they can use it either on their own or in combination with a a skilled, specifically trained trauma specialist, because a lot of the stuff that's taught in the graduate schools in traditional psychology simply does not work for deep-rooted uh, trauma. Uh, 
I I agree. I agree. And I think, sorry to talk over you. That's okay. Um, but I wanted to ask you a question. Were you at the, so you were never stationed overseas. You were always at the Pentagon. Um, no, no. Were, My active duty, I was uh-huh. stationed in Germany. Okay. Uh, waiting for orders for Vietnam. And I did not deploy to Vietnam, but I was just in the service during that time. And so I was seeing people coming back, troops coming back, friends coming back from the war. And, uh, you know, you can see people are often different. In fact, they're almost always different when they come back from war. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like you said, they had no idea how to deal with this. Uh, the VA had no idea really how to deal with it at that time. And uh, even today, even though we've learned so much, most people, a lot of clinicians, uh, don't know how to treat trauma um and especially you the the massive amount of homeless veterans stemming back from the vietnam war you know um it's such a huge problem in our country i i'm i'm really impressed about the fact that in 1998 you were already studying adverse childhood experiences because the it, to my knowledge and understanding, I just found out about this in the past few years. So isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I had no idea. Um, just to give you like a brief story so you can understand how this affects myself um, and what you're doing and how much I I'm I'm very passionate about um, like you about helping people and getting to the root of of struggling mentally. Mm -hmm. I say it a lot on the podcast that, you know, Mm -hmm. if you have a broken arm or you hurt something on your body, you're going to go to the doctor and get it fixed. And people can be so judgmental about our brains and how, you know, we might not be able to function or we might have different things that have affected us from childhood. So, um, my listeners know this, but, uh, I lost my sister very tragically, when I was two, we were Irish twins and my mother went to get her out of the, her crib and she had passed away. She had a, she had a very rare liver disease. And so my mom went left, you know, she was screaming, she was in shock because she didn't expect that. And I was kind of left in my high chair for, for a long period of time. And that was kind of, as you know, because our brain's aren't even fully developed until our mid twenties. Um, that was the first time I really was affected with trauma at such a young age. And like you said, it's that there was a whole slew of different things that I've dealt with, but that, um, affected me into my adulthood and still does to the point where, Mm. Um, in the past two years I was having, I I went through a lot of stuff. I started having suicidal ideations, um, Mm -hmm. and, um, really, really got to the point where I didn't want to go on anymore. And that's why, just so you know, I started this podcast because I wanted to help other people and not, Mm -hmm. and, and, and make it okay for people to talk about their pain or if they're suffering Mm -hmm. or because we're so as a society, so, so close-minded and quiet about it. Correct. Right. And, and that's part of the reason we don't know what our options are. (laughs) There's so many wonderful new healing options 
And it kills us to see people suffer like that when there are answers that people either don't know about or they think, well, it's not going to help. Or maybe I went to see a therapist once and it, it didn't help and therefore all therapy is bad. And that's why I love, like I'm in public health. And so my whole career has been taking stuff out of the clinic and giving it to people. Often these are skills that can be taught in the grade schools or basic training or the firefighter academy. Um, and usually it's the skills that help prevent PTSD that are also the skills that are uh, part of the treatment. And so, you know, whether you learn the skills in treatment after you're suffering or, or learn them in school years before, you know, I'd rather equip people preventively when they're, you know, in good shape before we wait until they're, you know, I don't want to say it's too late to heal because it's never too late to heal, but it's so much easier, more effective to help people preventively rather than wait until they're in trouble. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I also wanted to ask, so you've written over your career, 14 books, is that correct? Right. And, and that your current book is specifically about adverse childhood experiences. Right. It actually came out in January. It's called the adverse, the adverse childhood experiences recovery workbook. Okay. Uh, came out in January and uh, it's kind of a culmination of all the other books. Um, it's almost one of the, the last pieces in the trauma puzzle. And do you, when you say the, a workbook, I, I would, I would like you to explain why a workbook. Well, <clears throat> usually what we do, whether it's in the military or any place else, we say mm -hmm. when you have a mental disorder, and I, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable using that word, but in the sense mm -hmm. that we're out of our usual order, and then there's no stigma to that. Anybody can be uh, out of order or normal order. Um, there are a lot of things that people can do on their own. And I always think I'm about, I want people to be self-reliant to the degree possible. And that means I want to teach you skills. I don't want to just say, go see a mental health professional and they will treat you. I mean, yes, they will coach you. Yes, they will help you heal. But ultimately, I want you to be able to stand on your own and have skills for coping, no matter what you confront. And these skills are very teachable. And I don't mean always. Sometimes, you know, trauma by definition is overwhelming. And so it's wonderful sometimes for a traumatized person to have a skilled clinician and they're not always easy to find. I mean, sometimes you really have to interview people and ask them, do you have experience in this kind of trauma? What kind of treatments do you give? But a workbook is where you get to practice skills. And you can, some people say, I will never see a therapist, but I will read a book and practice on my own. Other people will say, this skill in the workbook looks interesting. I want to work on it with my therapist. Uh, and and that's a cool process because the therapist will say, oh, that seems like an interesting possibility. Why don't we work on that? So a workbook isn't just head knowledge. Head knowledge alone rarely cures anything. But skills and other healing uh, environments will heal. 
And, and I would assume too, it helps like you in your own head. I know that Dr. Nadine Macaluso, who's reoccurring on the show and my therapist, um, mm-hmm. she also did a workbook, uh, uh, her last book, um, about it's, it was really centered a, about knowing if you're with a narcissist and what kind of marital situation you're in or friendship situation. So it's, it helps mm-hmm. you kind of like identify and self-identify and think about things. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you were just asked a question, it would maybe come out differently. Uh, that's why I'm mm-hmm. I'm thinking the workbook is a whole different twist to things because I know in my mm-hmm. own life, I've been in and out of therapy throughout my life. And like you said, I would, you know, I've gone to therapists and I'm like, get me out of here. I never want to talk to you again. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then I have gone to my therapist that I'm with right now and we've been together for three years. So yeah. it just kind of, that's what I'm, without t- making um, an assumption, is that why you think the workbook is a good twist to, you know, do, doing the therapy? Yeah. People often say, well, why don't you become a therapist? And I always say, I think mm-hmm. I, I can do more good in giving people a good book that they can read and understand and practice the skills they're in. Um, you know, there are more mental health problems than the trained clinicians will ever be able to treat. And, and so there's going to be a lot of people who simply will never get to see a good therapist for lots of reasons, ignorance, mm-hmm. stigma funding. Um, and in Maryland, you know, I started um, pioneering these, piloting these classes where I said, look, we're here to learn skills and we're not interested in who's got this label or that label. I'm assuming people are relatively healthier. You wouldn't be in school. Although having said that, college students are no different than anybody else. They have a whole range of, of, uh, uh, traumas in their lives that are sometimes surprising to a lot of people. But I found, just like we found at the Pentagon, um, when you tell people, you know, it doesn't matter whether we're strong or weak or a combination of both, somewhere in between, we've all got strengths, we've all got skills, we're going to help each other all get even stronger by practicing skills. And so the way we set up the class was, here's a skill, Let's practice in class, go home and do it on your own. Then we'll come back in three or four days and we'll talk about how it went and reinforce successes and tweak. And I found that people are very capable of learning good coping skills. Um, and so a couple of workbooks were really the outgrowth of those kind of classes, as is the ACEs Recovery Workbook. It's like skills that anybody can learn. You know, with the caveat that some people are going to need someone to hold a hand a bit and a good coach, meaning therapist. Um, And, you know, I say people are smart. They can figure out whether they can do it on their own or whether they want to do it with some some help. Um, I guess I'll tell you one funny story, though. I remember after I wrote a book on depression, I got a call in my office at the university from a psychiatrist. And he said, could you come and teach my people? subordinate psychiatrist how to treat depression. And I remember thinking, aren't you guys the ones who are supposed to know how to do that? <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the people don't get sufficient training in medical school, um, graduate programs. You know, sometimes they get a lot of theory, but 
not necessarily a lot of skills to teach. And so that just was the impetus for me to start finding out, okay, what are the skills that people will learn? Let's teach it to them as soon as possible rather than wait till a break. So let me ask you a question. I know that I've talked about this before. What exactly is an adverse childhood experience? And I should have probably asked this in the beginning, but because sometimes I don't flow in the best of ways, and I have talked about it before, I, I, I want my listeners, if they've missed other episodes with guests mm-hmm. that we've talked about this, for, for the real definition to come from you, since you are so knowledgeable in it. And I hope you are, because you've written many books. Okay, so <laughs> adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, are kind of toxic, overwhelming kind of stressors that happen in the first 18 years of life. In the original research in 1998 by two medical doctors, they took the 10 most common, only the 10 most common, given there are lots, lots more, but the 10 that originally were defined as ACEs are any kind of abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, physical or emotional neglect, living in a household with an absent parent, like divorce, separation, Domestic violence against the mother, female caregiver, typically. Living in a house where there was mental illness, drugs, suicide, incarceration. I think that's 10. Um, and, And they found that the more of those ACEs you can check off, the more likely Mm -hmm. you are to get any kind of, almost any kind of medical or psychological or functional uh, problem. But that doesn't include lots of other possibilities that could also be called ACEs, which in subsequent research have often also been found to predict disorder, such as it could be the death of any family member or the absence of any family member for whatever reason, uh, deportation, uh, abduction, violence, uh, deployment. It could be the example you gave, um, any, any strong stress that takes the mother away from connecting with that child. It's a great example, death of a sibling. And that mother is not going to be typically fully available for the remaining child, the surviving child. And so that's a separation, which doesn't have to be just divorce. It could be the mother is preoccupied over a cheating spouse. It could be surgery separates the caregiver and the child. I mean, the possibilities are pretty endless, but those 10 were the original. So when you say, when you give that list, which I know, and I'm listening, I like counting on my fingers. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. And when, when I finally figured out what it was, it's kind of scary because then you find out, well, you, 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 the likelihood of like dying young committing suicide, getting cancer. Um, so this, that's why I'm very, very passionate about this Mm -hmm. subject because I Mm -hmm. don't, I'm at a point in my own life where I'm willing to try anything to stop what has happened. Um, the loss of my sister was the initial thing. Then I lost my dad to cancer. My mom remarried an abusive, uh, verbally abusive stepfather, Mm -hmm. 
recovering from an eating disorder. My best friend passed away very tragically. I mean, there's a whole slew of things that I dealt with in my 20s before I was 28 years old. And, um, and I just, I think when people feel like they have like, like a workbook, like you're saying, like you're doing or something where they can identify, like, this isn't a life sentence for me. I know I, I talked about it this week on social media. I started EMDR or I'm starting it because Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out, well, maybe just talk therapy isn't going to work for me because I'm still dealing with like deep, deep anger issues. Um, what are your Mm -hmm. thoughts on that? Is it like trying different things? Is it, give me some advice on that. First of all, let me just say my wife and I lead a addiction recovery group at church and these people come, addiction is the symptom. You know, there's almost always some kind of pain that drives the addiction. And like with you, I just look, I sit and I marvel at some of the things these people survive and they're still kicking and still plugging away. Um, and so I think part of the healing process is um, a person needs to experience the things that a child needed when they were young and helpless, caring, safety, love, knowing that the caregiver enjoys that child's presence. All that gets ripped away from a lot of ACE survivors, attachment disruptions. Um, and if, if I get away from your question, bring me back. Okay. No, but, no, it's, I totally understand. Um, my question was kind of like, what, like just to bring up the EMDR, just like different ways that you would, you personally would tell somebody a recovering ACE mm-hmm. that has, cause yeah. there's, if you do the quiz, there's some people that might only have one to two different on the checklist, right? That famous ACE checklist. Mm-hmm. But then there's other people that might have all of them, or there's some people that might have five. What are, what is your advice on that? Like, do you think EMDR is a good way for me, me personally yes, to go? What I are do. your thoughts EM, on that? EMDR is one of the valid treatments. It's a relatively new one. And it, like others, goes around the, the principle of reconsolidation, which says, if you've got a deep emotional wound, most people understandably want to run from that. I don't want to deal with pain. That's the last thing I want. And the healing process says, once you can bring up all the elements of traumatic memories, one at a time, you don't try to do this too fast. If you can, if you can bring up a memory, not just a little bit, but what were you thinking? What were you feeling? What were you sensing in your body viscerally? What kind of images were involved? then the brain has a chance to change that memory so you can then settle that memory. It's no longer on the desktop waiting to intrude and mess up every every waking moment and cause nightmares. So EMDR is one. One I like even better uh, is a derivative of EMDR called Accelerated Resolution Therapy, which I think is brilliant. I just came across that when I was studying the literature about how it seems to work even faster for veterans than EMDR, which is also very rapid and effective. But accelerated resolution therapy um, starts with what's going on in the body because, you know, it's a little tangent, again, pull me back, but 
trauma doesn't reside in the left brain, logical, verbal. It resides in the right brain, which is imagery and strong connections to emotion and visceral experience. So you've got to, you know, talking to someone about a trauma is not usually the place to start. It may be the last step, because if you can put words to your story, it integrates that memory, helps it settle. But to start, you start with calm the body so that can calm the emotional survival regions, which then allows the left brain to come back online. Um, And so what I love about accelerated resolution therapy, it starts with, okay, let's put the story aside. As you think about that traumatic memory, for example, in your case, um, the loss of your sister and seeing your mother just totally kind of separate um, for a, a time. What do you feel in your body? Just sit there like we do in mindfulness without judging it. And let's track that following eye movements. At a certain point, when that stops um, causing so much suffering, then you say, let's go to the the, uh, memory and let's erase and replace that image. And then ultimately... um, Think about crossing a bridge to a new life that's kind of normal and and uh, reasonably happy and and so it it covers a lot of ground in one fifty minute session. I mean, I think it's brilliant. Um, so if I were going to you know suggest one thing to a loved one, that would probably be the one. There's a another version that's fairly quick and very gentle. It's called intensive uh, resolution recovery, ITR. And instead of stringing out treatments over a year or two, it's often very effective in a week or two, depending upon the uh, type of of trauma. But they use art because if you can, if you're not able to speak it, you might be able to draw it. Um, And it very gently uses ways to complete the trauma story and settle it. it's really quite brilliant. I just kind of stumbled on them. They invited me to talk at University of West Virginia on dissociation and trauma. And the more I talked to these people, the more I thought, this is brilliant. I want to train with you guys. Um, and so I would be open to that. That sounds amazing. Um, I, what I find, what I find interesting, just like about the whole subject is I know that I'm starting the EMDR. I know that I've been in therapy. Part of me is afraid. So do you, like, I'm sure you find that a lot with ACEs or people that have gone through trauma. I lack, mm-hmm. I was diagnosed last year with complex PTSD, right. which I'm sure you've heard of because um, it's a newer diagnosis. But when I finally got an answer, <clears throat> that made me pretty feel pretty good that I knew what was happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um but I feel I, I, I'm just, I'm very honest and I feel very scared because I was so young and I, and I'm afraid to remember. And mm-hmm. that's, I think a lot of my listeners that have gone through trauma, I get emotional, sorry. They might feel the same way. So what mm-hmm. are your thoughts on that? On, you know, yeah. people that might come to you or in your writings, how, how do you address that? So you normalize first. You know, of course you feel afraid. You're afraid when you experienced it. You're going to be afraid when you go back and revisit it. But there are ways to kind of 
um, settle that fear. You know, in, a, in an atmosphere of trust, all the things that you didn't have when you're a kid, a good therapist um, establishes a sense of trust. It puts control in the um, client's hands, not in the therapist, so that you proceed at your pace. You're in control. If this gets too hard, we slow down. That's why I love the, instead of starting with, tell me about the, the trauma, left brainish, which you do feel like I'm going to lose control emotionally. Yeah. You say, okay, put that aside. Let, tell me what's going on in your body. Let's calm your body and kind of work upward very gently. You know, for example, um, if you were to tell me about, you know, that event that happened, I would say, okay, I noticed you're starting to tense. How about let's just put that story aside and let's just calm the body. You know, what happens when you just gently squeeze your uh, arm and, and tell me what that feels like? That's called tracking. And when people track, it calms the brain. It brings all of the uh, regions of the brain working together back online. Um, and so there are a lot of ways to, con- and that's why I think you don't just jump in and say, for most people, tell me about your trauma. Let's, let's give you some skills to cope with fear, with strong emotions, of which there are lots of them. And depending upon how, how uh, emotionally upset, afraid, uh, grief-stricken, et cetera, there are skills that you may take, you know, weeks or months or uh, sometimes there are some newer therapies that are quicker but but you can teach skills to regulate physical arousal regulate emotions that are you know strong and threaten to overwhelm you um and so kind of kind of put together an eight-step plan which starts by first four steps are just prepare to modify old memories you know, make sure the brain is is strong. Make sure you have skills to cope with intense emotions. Um, again, a lot of skills taken from the trauma clinics and taught preventively. You know, I, I saw an Olympic runner before a race start doing this, you know, tapping. That's that's a trauma treatment that's similar to EMDR and a lot of the same mm-hmm. uh, principles. Um, and and once you're we can do imagery to strengthen the brain before you even go after the memory. Um, I, I use this metaphor, like if this is the neural pathway and it's a, a dirt path and a lot of people have walked over it, it's a real strongly entrenched path. But what if you built like a, a super highway, right? Parallel to that. And everybody starts using the super highway. Nobody's using the dirt path. That dirt path starts to grow over with grass in the brain is called dendritic pruning. What you don't keep uh, using, those pathways start to weaken. So before mm-hmm. you go after those neural pathways directly, use imagery exercises, right brain. Just imagine what it might have been like had you had a, a attentive, loving, bonding uh, caregiver instead of one that was distant or angry or didn't want you or you know whatever caused that child's stress. Um, and once you do a bunch of imagery exercises that build kind of parallel positive neural pathways, at that point, you're thinking, okay, I'm kind of kind of comfortable in my skin. I think maybe I'm ready to kind of rework some of those old memories. And when you do that, that's, the, that's really the cure. And then after you do that, then you start um, 
learning transition skills, like joy skills is one way to think of it. Because life isn't just about healing trauma, it's about having a joyful, satisfying life. But these are all skills that can be taught um, at your speed, at the, you know, it's not in the therapist's control, and a good therapist won't push you uh, faster than you're willing to go. I love, I love what you said about a little while ago about um, like your funny story about teaching or having a bunch of psychiatrists come in and, you know, I, I feel like, and I don't, I don't ever want to badmouth anybody, but um, I feel like sometimes medicine is very heavily pushed. Mm-hmm. And um, in my own experience, I am on Zoloft. I'm very open about it um, because I had such extreme panic attacks that I, I thought I was dying and I had to start. Mm-hmm. So my, my goal is to wean myself off and not be on Zoloft mm-hmm. forever. Some people just need medicine. What are your thoughts on on medications? Yeah, I, I'm not a psychiatrist. My experience tells me, like you feel it, we often mm-hmm. over-medicate. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, you're anxious, you can't sleep, let me write a tranquilizer. Well, that doesn't fix the, the cause of the anxiety, the cause of the trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my colleagues internationally known psychologist says i've never seen a pill that cures trauma and i believe that um in fact some of the things that are prescribed like tranquilizers i think are horrible drugs it's a it's a quick fix but it's not a cure it, it doesn't equip the person with coping skills so i think the best i would say is if you're going to prescribe make sure you're also te- teaching somebody coping skills and then maybe wean you know, as, as they're able to, and I'm not, I'm not saying in all situations, I have a dear friend who said, I finally got my wife back. She's on Zoloft. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is the answer, but I think often it's overprescribed. It's the easy way out. As a culture, we over-medicate. So, mm-hmm. um, I do know, I mean, there's different diagnoses of 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 mental illness. I hate to say illness too because it's so unfair. Mm-hmm. It's there's such a stigma behind it. It's I I would rather it just be met. I don't even. I'm trying to come up with a term. Maybe you have a better one than I do because every time I kind of say mental illness, people kind of go oh, and it's like you're judged right away. Yeah. No pun intended. Yeah. Um, you know. What do I you have- like to say? I, I have this discussion with a classmate of mine from West Point years after he graduated, and he's campaigning to take the D out of PTSD disorder. Mm-hmm. And I said, really, I don't care what we call it. I, to me, there's no stigma to say disorder, out of normal order. To me, that just recognizes that, you know, I happen to be out of the order right now. I went through some really bad things, and and that's the reality, and I don't see a stigma there. But if it makes you better to take the D away, I'll say post-traumatic stress. Nobody seems to worry about stress. Yeah, but, it's true. Uh, Isn't it so funny that people are, like, fine with that? But if you bring in the um, the in the word illness, like mental illness, well, what right. do you expect for people, especially ACEs? You know, like, none of this, this was as a society and a culture, it's not our fault. And the more that we can like stop saying that and making people like, how many times do you hear people go, Oh my God, she's so crazy. 
Like I have people saying that about me. It really bothered me for a while because women are mean and whatever. That's a whole another story. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's like, why are you saying somebody's crazy? Like, that's not a nice thing to say. I, it no, just, that not. whole thing really bothers me. Yeah. Crazy is unkind. On the other hand, we would, we wouldn't hesitate to say you have a, an illness, you got a cold. Mm-hmm. Um, is it okay to say you have a mental illness because of what happened? It makes perfect sense. That doesn't mean you're weak, have bad character, but illness is something we can recover from. Mm-hmm. So yeah, how, about, how about a mental virus? I like that. <laughs> I like a mental or a, or a, or a mental mental yeah. injury. Sometimes people mental call it injury. Like yeah. The in the military, people are getting away from disorder and calling it um, a combat stress injury. Uh-huh. Is is my only concern is that people don't shy away from acknowledging that I have a need here. I'm in trouble, but it's yeah. it's something I can do something about. It. It's not a lifelong sentence. So I personally, I'd rather say, okay, I'm out of order here. Now, what do I do to get back in order? But if, do you, if, if do it you troubles believe, someone. Yeah. Sorry to talk up. Do you believe that there's a, a cure? I don't even know if I want to say cure, but a, a solution, maybe a cure for every mental um, virus for mental <sighs> illness there is like, you know, yeah, there's so I, many different ones. Yeah, I, there's so many diagnoses. I, I think we overdiagnose. We have to give yeah. the label. When people are just showing their distress, their pain in different ways, maybe for me it's mm-hmm. depression, maybe for you it's PTSD. Um, when people are schizophrenia, in pain, yeah, yeah, you know, there are some things that I think um, the prognosis is not as good when there's a biochemical problem, but even there, they're finding teaching people new ways to think who have schizophrenia improve. So I asked my psychiatrist mentor once about that very question you Mm -hmm. asked. And he said, well, we can all go up the staircase. And that's the way I look at it. You know, I may be down here, you may be here, but we can all go up the staircase. And that's the learning process, a skills acquisition process. And there's hope there, I think. So it's not like well, you're suicidal. You got a diagnosis. Freud did that and it didn't cure anybody. But to say, okay, you're manifesting stress this way or that way. What do we do to go up the staircase? And then the stigma is gone and it's just a learning process and there's no shame in not having skills. You know, if I had been taught those skills, I'd have them. But I haven't been taught them. So tell me how to learn those. I love, I love this. And I also love you know, that it kind of reminds me of if we're going to work on our physical bodies, like whether you're a runner for my, for myself, how I kind of deal with my anxiety and my depression is I work out like I, I have to every single day or it's Mm. really, it's really not good. (laughs) Um, do you, it's, it's kind of like we work out our bodies and take care of our bodies, but what you're saying is we need to work on our heads so I really have issues with my left brain. I'm very right brained as like they say, I'm very artistic. I was mm. a singer and an actress when I was young, I would escape in characters. And the joke in my family is cause we like to kid around. It's just like, 
my left brain is just not, <laughs> it was not never turned on. Like I was horrible with math, not, could never learn a foreign language. So I, I, I love what you're saying that it's, it's about like learning new ways, learning new methods to kind of balance out your brain. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Um, and that makes sense given what you said in your early childhood, the left brain probably had some um, developmental problems because of the stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nice thing is the brain is plastic. So a lot of those things can be improved. Um, one of the steps before I even encourage people to deal with a trauma is let's let's optimize the brain health and functioning. There's lots of ways to do that. And a lot of therapists never talk about that because they say, well, talk to me about your feelings <laughs> instead of saying, well, what, are, sure what are some of those things? Like if my listeners want some, I, I know I had Danny on, I've had several aces on if, and I'm sure I have listeners that are aces as well. What are some mm-hmm. tips that you can give right now to my listeners that they can do themselves yeah. at home? So before... Besides uh, getting this, your book. Besides getting your book, of mm-hmm. course. Yeah. yeah. The big, there's about nine steps, all of which work together to optimize brain health and function, to include reducing inflammation, strengthening the blood-brain barrier, Uh, fertilizing the neurons so they can connect and make new positive connections. And the nine, if I can remember them all, are basically the big three are sleep hygiene. And by the way, that's tough when you're having nightmares from trauma. So, I mean, sometimes you got to deal with the trauma and settle out so people sleep better. But there's a lot of things that, you know, setting regular go-to-sleep hours, get off the screen a few hours before so the blue light doesn't keep you up. Um, regular, moderate exercise, and Mediterranean diet. Those are the big three. Um, The Mediterranean diet has been found when people simply go on that, like kids after Uh three weeks, their depression goes down. Not doing anything directly to modify depression, but you're just helping the brain function optimally. And so kids today are more prone, more likely to be doing Energy drinks, the army found that's a bad idea. It doesn't work. Yeah. It just makes people more stressed and more sleep deprived. Um, you know, the Mediterranean diet helps the microbiome, which directly affects the brain, the mood, the brain functioning. So those are three big ones. There I have are, never heard that about the Mediterranean diet. I'm going to go research this after. I think I've even, I'm always on a diet. I think I've, oh, I've tried that. In the past. Yeah. So the Mediterranean diet. Well, the Mediterranean diet basically helps the microbiome. Um, Okay. If if the trillions of microbes in the gut are in balance, it tends to secrete more serotonin, which is what helps us be less depressed, less anxious. It sends messages to the brain via the vagus nerve. There's more messaging from the gut to the brain than vice versa. So, you know, who thinks about, okay, I'm depressed up here. Well, let me work on my gut. <laughs> but, but the Mediterranean does that. It includes fermented foods, which also help the microbiome. It keeps blood sugar fairly constant. Um, it reduces animal fats, which can apparently reduce circulation to the brain. So there's probably a lot of mechanisms 
But what they found is teens who start on it improve their mood very quickly. Adults who are cognitively impaired who go on it with very easy exercise, 30 minutes uh, a day, three times a week. Within six months, they reverse their brain aging nine, uh, nine years. So some of the old basic health stuff, you know, needs to be attended to. There are diseases that uh, wreak havoc with the brain, like sleep apnea, if that's not treated, uh, high blood pressure, thyroid problems often go misdiagnosed, uh, diabetes, gum disease, that'll toxins get into the brain. Uh, there are certain drugs uh, called uh, anticholinergic drugs that block acetylcholine, a major neurotransmitter, and you find those in sleeping pills, over-the-counter, and prescription. You find wow. them in trank- tranquilizers. There's that drug that I don't like uh, very much. Um, and so, so your anti-sleeping your anti-sleeping pills. What about melatonin? Are you okay with melatonin? Um, if it works, great. But yeah. the sleeping pills don't seem to work any better than the non-pharmacological approaches and often work worse in the long term. So yeah. there are times when a you know judiciously prescribed, rarely prescribed sleeping aid might be indicated, but I want to try skills first. You know, put the control yeah. on the person, not the pill. And you you mentioned in the beginning that you um, deal with addiction recovery here in your church. Um, do you find that, I mean, I'm going to be honest and very transparent. I definitely lean on alcohol. I lean on Chardonnay. I mentioned it, mm-hmm. um, which I think is very common for trauma survivors. I, I, it's something I, I don't think I, well, who knows, like who knows who has a problem and who doesn't. But, um, when you say alcohol, is that, uh, that obviously is not helping. Correct. I mean, I already know the answer to that. (laughs) So I'm going to throw it out there to you as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we deal with people who are trying to overcome addictions of which alcohol is one. And what we just say is, look, the addiction is a symptom. There's pain that's driving that. Let's deal with the pain because the alcohol does nothing for the pain. It just is a temporary Mm -hmm. Mm cover-up. So you don't judge someone for wanting to deal with pain. You just say, look, there's better ways in the long term to to deal with that. But you can stop drinking. And if you haven't dealt with the underlying pain, like ACEs, you're probably Mm -hmm. going to relapse. Yeah. Or let me just say you're more vulnerable. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's very common um, that an ACE, it can turn into alcoholism, especially if it's hereditary in your family. Or Um, anything else. Heroin. Yeah. You know, I just uh, got to know one gal that uh, her father abandoned her and and she was a brilliant student uh, taking college courses in high school which got her involved with the college crowd. And she so wanted to be accepted that she offered, she took her first drink that was offered mm-hmm. to her. The guy who gave it, one of the people who kept giving her drinks actually ended up being her boyfriend who got her hooked eventually onto heroin. 
And so it makes perfect sense. Instead of saying, well, you're a drug, you go, well, look, look at what's driving that addiction. Let's deal with that. Kill mm-hmm. that, not kill the pain, but heal the pain. Do you find that, um, do you find that COVID has brought more acceptance into talking about these things? Do you find, are you worried about the direction? I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm worried about the direction our, our country is going in, but do you worry about the direction we're going in with mental health? Yesterday, I was, I think, listening to NPR and they were talking about social media, Instagram specifically with um, teenage girls and how there's been studies on that. It's, it's basically like the worst thing that you can have for a teenage girl to have a, be on Instagram because they have thrown in their faces, body, body um, dysmorphia. Like it's all about what you look like. And they found that there was studies done and they were not upfront and honest with us with Mm -hmm. how detrimental it is to, to young Mm -hmm. girls specifically. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. It's an addiction and it's, it's Mm -hmm. a world of imagination. It's not real, real world. It's not real personal connections, but it's a challenge to keep the young folks off of the screens. Um, When I grew up, people talked to each other. You want to play with your friends, you go see them, you know, hook in this superficial distant way. So I think anything parents can do, you know, have a dinner that's uh, electronics free, put your phones in the basket and we're going to talk to each other. We're going to help each other with the meals, preparing and cleaning up, uh, you know, schedule time without uh, the phone in your, in your face. No, I, I totally agree. It's, it's not real. It's not healthy. And it's, it's a new phenomenon that, uh, you know, one time I, I looked at four kids in a row and they were all texting each other and their heads were in their phone. And I'm going, why don't you just turn and talk to each other? But they It's don't. really terrifying. It really is. And, and I also am on my phone constantly. I'm on Instagram. I'm doing all that stuff. So it's kind of like I'm what kind of lesson am I? I have two little girls. Am I teaching my daughters? Because they're seeing me do it. And then I think mm-hmm. about like when I was a kid. You know, we didn't have phones, obviously, and we were like out in our court playing kick the can. You know, we were playing, we were talking to each other, like you said. I I wonder what direction we're going in. It's almost like, yeah, it's it's like so scary that it was even invented, really. And yeah, where well, and where, are we, where are we going with it? I was just giving a talk last week on science, and I quoted Einstein, who somewhere between the 30s and 60s, made some very interesting comments, one of which said, um, can you tell me how all the technology that we've gotten from applied science is making us happier? Um, I'm paraphrasing, but basically it's disconnecting us from others, self, peace. It's, uh, it's an addiction. Yeah. Well, I wanted to kind of wrap things up, but I wanted to, to kind of have my audience know how they can reach out to you and read your books. Mm -hmm. I'm very impressed by how many books you've written. You're my idol. Thank you for what you're doing with the world and helping other people. So they, so you can be found on resiliencefirst.com. That's your website, correct? Right. Uh Uh-huh. 
Okay. And uh, there's a brief description of the book. Um, but if you go on Amazon and just type in my name, S-C-H-I-R-A-L-D-I, first name is Glenn with two N's, you'll see my various books. But, uh, you know, I, I love talking about what we just talked about, the adverse childhood experiences. One is, um, like you, I just love helping people. And my wife says, Glenn can't stand to see people suffer. <laughs> and, I, and that's true. I, I think a lot of suffering is needless just because we don't know what the answers are. But there are lots of good answers uh, to toxic stress. And and I love I love what you said about maybe not necessarily leaning so heavily on medication because I for so long was anti medication because I had such bad experiences with it as a kid being thrown at me. You know, like, oh, you're not happy. So we're going to put you on Prozac or whatever it was after my dad died. Mm. And I and I and I've been until I got to the point where I was kind of at my breaking point. I want people to know, like you, that there are answers and um, and, you know, there are people that care. And I'm so your wife's very lucky that she found somebody that cares about other human beings Uh, in my life. It's my mission to help people. And, um, and I don't ever, I would love for somebody to not feel the pain that I felt in my life. And Mm. so I decided to take a turn and help people. And I love that you do that too. So I'm so grateful Mm. to you for coming on the podcast. Um, in closing, I wanted to ask you a quick question. I always ask my guests this, and I don't know what you think of it, but do you believe in signs? And I ask this because I, I am very spiritual. Some people are religious in different ways. I'm, I'm religious, spiritual, mm-hmm. and I always kind of look at for the butterflies. That's how mm-hmm. I know my, my angel, Julie, is with me, mm-hmm. my best friend that passed or my dad. Do you, like, I know it's hard sometimes if you're, like, of, like, very, you know, a doctor, but do you believe in signs? I'll just ask you anyways. Well, let me just say that the, the talk yeah. I gave last week was science yeah. and faith and joy. Oh, um, I good. think science does a lot, but it doesn't do everything. And I think the answers to our deepest yearnings and our deepest wounds are in the spiritual faith realm. And I so, agree. yeah, I do. I, you know, I, I was reluctant to say that not too long ago, but now I think the data is very clear that there are benefits to people who have faith. Yep. Um, and unless one thinks deity is mean and punitive, which most don't, faith is beneficial. It's a real coping resource. So I think that's a wonderful thing. People have it. If people don't have it, there's still a lot of things that are very helpful. I love that. Well, thank you, Glenn, so much for coming on the podcast. In closing, keep living, keep praying, and keep growing. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.